Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We did say there was a chance. England pulled off one of their best performances in recent memory to go 1-0 up over India in India, whilst also going top, yes, top of the World Test Championship standings. I'm Yaz Rana, and to discuss that test, Carl Mez's heroics for West Indies, Hassan Ali's sensational Pakistan comeback, and more with me today is the Wisdom.com Features Editor, Tar Hashim, Wisdom Cricket Monthly Editor-in-Chief, Phil Walker, and the Magazine Editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. We also have an interview between Ben Gardner and Matthew Hayden coming up late in the show on where Australia cricket is at right now. Let's get straight into the Chennai test. Joe, we've had quite a few questions in about where this win ranks. Um, how encouraging is this England win, given India's recent dominance and given the relative inexperience of quite a lot of this England team? We said there was a chance, but we, you know... We weren't that confident on this show in the, in the in the months and weeks leading up to this test. No, I, I think it, well, it couldn't have gone any better. Uh, it was polished, smart, tenacious, a, like a complete performance. Really, I think we were comparing it to the England football World Cup campaigns last last week. Have we got a bit overexcited? Are they going to go and win it? Well, there was no Rob Green through the legs to open the tournament. This was a this is a perfect performance, really, in in lots of ways, uh, and. Joe Root must be so delighted, obviously, with his own form, which just goes through the roof. Uh, but nearly everyone contributed something in that in that win, and they go into the second test um, feeling hugely confident. India will come back. We know they will. They'll perform a lot better than they did in this first test. Um, but it's a perfect start. 11 games without defeat now for England under Joe Root. It's six wins in a row in Asia. Root now has as many wins as England Test captain as anyone else. He's also scored yet another double hundred this year. Phil, this career-defining year for Root has started as well as it possibly could have done and as well as anyone could have imagined. Yeah, but better than even him in his wildest dreams. Uh, when he gave an interview to the, to the magazine a couple of months ago, there was uh, an absolute awareness, a consciousness of what 
of what was at stake for him personally and for the team. Um, you couldn't ask for a better uh, set of conditions for, for him to go and express himself than, than to begin in Sri Lanka. Uh, as we know, he is the master, the modern master of playing, playing the turning ball. But to orchestrate what we've just seen over the last few days um, and to do it with a kind of a new kind of authority, really. Um, uh, to say it bodes well is a massive understatement because, um, you know, we, uh, some of us have felt this more strongly than others, I think, over the last last few months. But but he's he, he's now in, a, in this position where he has a team um, with five or maybe even six world class test match cricketers. Uh, what it's needed over the last couple of couple of years, almost ironically, is Joe Root to be the true Joe Root. Um, is he is he England's greatest player, say, of, of my lifetime? I still think that Gooch and Peterson, by by a nose, may shave it. Uh, I think we'll know where Root stands in the pantheon by the end of next uh, next winter, when he goes down to Australia, and if he can crack that from a personal perspective, then he's out there on his own. But as a player of the turning ball and as a man who's now completely in control of his environment and his team, uh, who is by stealth building this astonishing record, really, as a captain. I mean, his win percentage is just second to Brearley's and his win, as you say, his win tally is now equal to Vaughan's. Uh, he will always be Joe Root, the batsman first, it seems, in our, in our, in our, collection, in our consciousness, but... Uh, I mean, who's to say where he can finish up by this time next year? It really has been an extraordinary few weeks for the bloke. I, I just want to say with, with Root, he, he just looks the smartest guy in the room. Um, in terms of his batting, we can talk about the double century. But yesterday, that, that 40-odd that he got off 21, it kind of, that innings almost showed sort of the level that he's operating on compared to everyone else. You know, everyone else was struggling on that pitch. It was slow, it was hard to slog. After Ollie Pope got out, I mean, even Josh Butler, who's one of the best ball strikers in the world, you know, he, he was struggling. Uh, and Root was another, on another level. But then when it came to the declaration as well, um, you know, like they, were like they were filming every second of him. He's just drinking a cup of tea, kind of knowing when he wants his side to go out. It, it seemed a bit weird what they were doing last night. But then again, Root just kind of has all the answers right now. And... Um, you know, his, his decision to keep batting on, you know, was, was justified today. And he's just, this is, this is his team now. Over the last few years, especially during the Trevor Bayless era, you, you never really saw him sort of commanding things. Um, right now, he's got that sort of that smile back when he's bat and when he's, when he's in the field as well. Um, he knows how to use his spinners pretty well, even if they fluctuate in terms of form. Um, it's Joe Root's England now, um, which, which is something you probably couldn't say in the, in the three years before that he'd been captain. Uh, brief word on Silverwood as well. I, I think he has uh, quietly done a done a pretty good job on this team, and I and I feel that Root has been freed up to really concentrate on his on his batting because I think Silverwood deflects a lot of the pressure, or rather absorbs a lot of the pressure uh, off Root's shoulders. I think they dovetail pretty well. Uh, we've written and spoken about this before. Silverwood is a very much a a kind of silent partner, I suppose. Um, he's not especially uh, demonstrative in front of a camera or particularly charismatic as a so-called leader. 
But I think for Root, he's the perfect bloke to have alongside him. There was a lovely touch when Jack Leach castled uh, Rohit Sharma in the final minutes of the fourth evening when Silverwood, who's trying his best to maintain a kind of Duncan Fletcher impenetrability, couldn't resist with a little fist pump. And I have to say, to my eternal shame, I joined him, fellas. I did a little involuntary fist pump myself. Don't hold it against me, please. I did the same. Um, I, I, re- I reckon that's the, the happiest I've been for an England bowler taking a wicket like that in quite a long time. The I do like the, the Silverwood celebration. It was almost Arsene Wenger-esque, the way he gets up from his chair. And he got progressively happier and allowed himself to look happier uh, as the fifth day progressed. Um, question for you, Joe. I kind of wonder if England have benefited almost from the gap in their schedule between facing... The, the really, really big challenges in Test cricket. They've had quite a long time where they've made mistakes and, and lost Test matches in, in 2019, um, most notably. Um, but then they had a, a relatively easy run for 10 Tests. And it, it's, it's given this new group of players in the Silverwood era a, a decent number of Test matches to find their way in Test cricket. So they're almost as ready as reasonably inexperienced players can be for a challenge like India. Do you think there's any... Anything in that or am I talking nonsense? Yeah, I think there's something definitely in that. And I think there's also been uh, big breaks in play in general, which have allowed, um, Joe Root said this to Phil and Josh Butler said it to Taha, they've been able to actually work on their game, their Red Bull game, in a way they wouldn't if the fixtures just kept coming. Um, But I think that that's true in terms of the strength of opposition. I think we mentioned it last week, how important having the Sri Lanka series and lead up to this might prove. And I think we absolutely saw that in the first test. would Root have scored a double century in his first innings in India? Well, he's a good enough player. He might have done, but his chances were certainly a hell of a lot higher based on what he'd done in Sri Lanka. Uh, the same for the confidence in Bess and Leach, which we saw even during this first test. It goes up and down, it fluctuates. India's batsmen are going to take them on. But they at least had those wickets in Sri Lanka to fall back on when things started to go wrong for them, as it did for Leach against Pant, as it did for Bess today, uh, which was a little bit concerning. Um, but yeah, I think we've got even though they haven't played the amount of testers, I think test matches, I think these players do feel more of a, a kind of solid unit than they might do. When you look down the number of test matches played for that India side and for the England side, it feels like there shouldn't be a contest in terms of experience. But this does feel like a proper England unit now. Tar, we've talked a lot uh, going into the series about how important the spinners will be in terms of impacting on England's success. And we've been reasonably cautious in praising them for their performance in Sri Lanka. What were your impressions of Bess and Leach in Chennai? Well, they had two just incredibly contrasting matches. Um, if you look to the first innings where uh, Don Bess, that's, that's the best he's ever bowled in England shirt, really, uh, taking those four wickets, four massive wickets, you know, Kohli, uh, Rahane, Pant, Pant Pajara. Um, and Leach, Leach didn't bowl badly. Um, he, he went for a few from Pant, but Pant's, Pant's a free, you know. He's one of the cleanest hitters of the ball in the world, he can, he can do that. Leach, you know, he had his plan uh, and Pant just, you know, he just nailed every ball through the middle. It was, it was incredible to watch, but he, he didn't bowl badly. And, and I think there were a few comments saying that, that Jack Leach is going to be hurt by this. And I mean, you, you don't really understand Jack Leach if, if you're saying that because he's, <laughs> Jack Leach has been through a lot off the pitch. He's, he's had his action questioned before he even played for England. Um, you know, he... He's been in and out of this te- test side. He had sepsis, for God's sake. Um, you know, he could cope with Rashad Pant hitting a few sixes. Um, and then 
And then in the second innings, things turned dramatically. Leach bowled beautifully, bowled the magic deliveries. I mean, he's not always had control of his lengths over the last three tests, but he's, he's got enough wicket-taking deliveries there, and that's what you need, especially when you have runs on the board. Um, and then contrast to that, Don Best bowled really poorly today, I'm afraid. Like, it's, my heart goes out to him because um, his story is pretty special in itself, and, and he's, he's proved a lot of people wrong. But there were times today where it was tough watching him because it kind of looked like he just couldn't land the ball. There were tons of full tosses. Um, Coley picked the gaps with ease. Um, and he just looked, he looked really down on confidence, which is weird when you've just had the best day of your life a few, a few days ago. I think best really tired in the first innings as well. Uh, he started to get a bit ragged. I just think he really hasn't bowled that many overs in his career. It, it, it will be, and in those conditions, it must, must be really tough. But it was a bit alarming what happened today. I think, he, I think he'll play the second test, but I think that's one England going to have to watch. He might, four tests in quick succession might be a bit, a bit much for him, potentially. Um, just on Jack Leach, I think Tar's absolutely right. He's a cricketer that's too easy to underestimate and often is. Um, but it struck me when Pant was kind of launching him to all parts, uh, and Leach even said after, after the game today, he, he thought he was playing in the IPL for a moment. Well, Leach has never played a T20 match in his career. Uh, he hasn't played a one-day game for five years. He's not used to that kind of treatment. That, that just doesn't really happen. Um, and he did, he did get a bit ragged after that. It did obviously shake his confidence. But I thought Root handled him really well. He kept bowling him, even at times when I thought, is Leach the best option? I think there was a bit of trying to just get a bit of confidence back into him and not leave him just standing in the outfield. Uh, and then he came back really strongly and he bowled. That was a huge wicket of Rohit Sharma on, on the evening of day four. And then he picks up Pujara on the morning of day five. Uh, those two bats alongside Kohli, the, the, the big three in that Indian back lineup. And as soon as I went this morning, I thought uh, England were almost there, really. I think it bodes particularly well for Leach over the next three test matches because he seemed to find the right pace to bowl on those pitches. Uh, and there's going to be variety in the pitches as we move through the, the series for sure. But he bowled in a similar kind of fashion to Panasar eight years ago. Now, Panasar's a bit taller and can drive it into the pitch a little bit more than Leach. But Leach still found the right kind of optimum pace. And it's not, no guarantee that an English spinner reared on English pitches will be able to intuitively find that right kind of pace. But the ball to Sharma, but crucially the ball to Pajara, as Joe mentions... Um, and his reaction to it afterwards as well. There was a kind of steeliness in his reaction. You know, he didn't, he didn't appear shocked. He didn't appear surprised. He seemed very self-contained and very composed in the moment Leach did, as if he's saying, you know, this is why, this is why I've been picked and, this, and I backed myself to get this job done. Uh, but from a technical standpoint against the right-handers, and they have, what, five right-handers in the top six, uh, he's he's absolutely found that optimum pace and that bodes very, very well for him um, and for England's chances now, genuinely. Um, this this might be a small point that I'm, uh, I might be overstating, but I feel like Joss Butler going home is, is actually quite big for Leach. Um, Butler was, you could sort of hear Butler's support from um, behind the stumps. We know they're good friends. I mean, there were quite a few reviews that England should never have taken, which I feel like Butler was going... Was, was, was backing when, when Leach was bowling. Um, and so that could, that could be a little point that, that but might not be to, to England's benefit. But, um, you know, Leach was... Leach has got now, what, five wickets in that first test in Sri Lanka, um, four for in the second one, now another four for 
Um, he's going, he's going brilliantly, really. Uh, just as an aside on that point, Alistair Cook on Channel 4's good coverage of the, of the week said at the end, quote, it's hard to justify in my mind Butler going home after this test match. If ever you want, a, you want confirmation of how quickly establishment player moves to pundit, then it's in, it's in that line from Cook right there. And there's been a few others as well, him kind of questioning what Root was up to on the fourth evening before the declaration and so on. Uh, we don't need to go, go down that road about whether Butler should or shouldn't be going home and so and so on. But uh, it, it, is, it is a bit of a fly in the ointment for England, I think. They'll wake up tomorrow morning and wave Joss away. He's kept stunningly well in this test match, by the way. Uh, and yeah, that's, that's a slight bum note for them, I would say. Yeah, I completely agree. I thought, I thought Butler was, was excellent with the gloves and it would be very odd for him to go home after such a high. Just, just on the, <laughs> the commentary of, of the, uh, on the fourth evening, that was, that was really torturous, that discussion on the declaration. It, it started so early and they even brought it up again on day five when um, India were already six down before lunch. And I think if you want a clear, the clearest illustration of the, the jump from being a player and being a captain to, to being a pundit, who has no responsibility is, is Cook criticising Root for, for, for not declaring early enough. Just again on, on day five, James Anderson's spell this morning, even by his standards, was, was phenomenal. Taha, Lucas McDonald asks, was that the best ever over by an Englishman? Well, I saw a few people comparing it to um, uh, Flintoff versus Ponting. Um, what was remarkable about this over was that with Flintoff v Ponting, even, even if you were watching it on TV, you could feel that atmosphere building in the crowd. Here, Anderson was building it by himself, you know, with the movement in, um, with the ball keeping low. Um, and to send Gill, who'd been playing like a dream before then, send him his stump cartwheeling and, and then Rahane's. The thing with Anderson, you know, you don't actually see too many cartwheeling stumps. He's not the quickest man in the world. Um, he usually picks off the outside edge. And so to, to watch that was, was, was special in itself. I mean, there's, there's not a lot more to say about James Anderson, really, is there? But um, in a way, he still kind of surprises because 12 months ago, if you told someone that James Anderson would be leading England to test victory in India, you know, a, a year from now, you just still thought, no, that's even for him, that's a bit too much. Um, but this is, this, is, this is phenomenal, really. I mean... I don't really know what else there is to say about the guy. Well, Joe, I mean, there's a reasonable chance that, that Anderson won't play a second test due to England's rotation policy, which, which to a lot of people makes a lot of sense, but it might seem odd Anderson not playing after that. What do you think? I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that one because I'm not sure there is a, is a correct answer to it. it. All I would say, it's very hard to watch him bowl like he did today and then, then give him a breather. Um, I think it... It has to come down to how, how his body's feeling, and, and we just don't know that. But he's making all the right noises. In fact, he'll tell anyone he'll listen that he's feeling great, he's feeling better than he's ever done, he's bowling better than he's ever done. And who can blame him? Whenever we talk about him, we talk about how old he is and how it's amazing he's still doing it. It must be quite frustrating in some ways. But, yeah, I, don't know. I mean, I think Broad could, could come in and do an almost equally good job. Um, but then I do think you, you want the variety of Archer's pace there. One thing I would say, we've got the day-night test as the third game. I think you want Anderson absolutely ready for that in the best tip-top condition. So as absurd as it seems, I might rest him as planned for the second one, make sure he's absolutely um, 
going all guns blazing when he comes in for the third test. He made it. He made it quite clear that he wants to play. Did you Did you hear him afterwards, Anderson? He, he makes his own run in, does Jimmy Anderson these days? Uh, and to, to hell with the rotation policy. To hell with the best laid plans of mice and men. He's not having it. He wants to play. I I tend to agree with Joe that the clincher is probably that third test match under lights with the orange ball or the pink ball or the yellow and green ball, whatever it's going to be. Uh, I think that's probably gonna gonna force Root's hand, and that Broad, who's also no stranger to knocking on the captain's door either, I would imagine. I think they'll probably go go with what they planned in the first place. I mean, it's working so well so far. But he's bowled 26 overs or 27 overs in this test match, Anderson, over five days, and he's got now a four-day break. Uh, it, it's, it's a hard one to justify on, on paper, but uh, I think they will go ahead and do it, and I can understand why. I, I still fully back England being brought over Anderson for the next test, I think. I mean, I think the three tests so far has just vindication for that policy working. Um, and I quite like the idea of you still having Archer or a quicker guy in there. Um, like Archer showed his value in this test, picking those two wickets up in the first innings, getting the ball to sort of explode off the pitch, which you probably wouldn't see Broad or Anderson do. Um, and so I, I still fully back that policy. And I think Broad's never been a better place to do well in the, uh, do as well in India as he is now. He's, the way he's bowled in the last few years is he's targeting the stumps, um, making the batsman play all the time. And if we're going to see that sort of similar sort of bounce, um, well, we're playing on the same, playing on the same ground. If you see that, that sort of similar sort of bounce in the second test at Chennai, where it keeps low and you have that variable bounce, he's going to be, he's going to come into play, obviously, and, he, and, he, and he's going to do a good job. And you know, I think that, I think it's, I just think it's working. I, I don't see, I don't see any reason to to try both of them. I think I think England have got a bang on. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair, entirely fair. A good summary, really. Um, also, just just as on on route as as how he's managing his bowlers now. First time, I mean, I'm, this might be nonsense actually, but first time that I can remember Anderson not taking the new ball in the in the second innings. Uh, Archer and Leach took the new ball together. Now there was an hour's play. Uh, Jimmy had had his feet up all day, and. You, it takes a bit, bit of, bit of balls by the captain to say, well, you know, Jimmy, you're going to come in with the older ball tomorrow when it's going to be hopefully reverse swinging, uh, and we're going to go and try and try and blow them away with Joffre and 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 try and rip it with with Jack. Fair, fair play to Root again, and it just shows that they do have now that variety in this five-man attack. And although Stokes um, has been, you know, a backseat driver a little bit in that five-man, he still came in and, and took took the big one with a grubber. Uh, towards the the end of the game, so so yeah, Root is managing his 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 artillery pretty well, I think, at the minute. Uh, and I mean, our heads are all spinning now with optimism going into the next game. Joe, what was your moment of the week? Yeah, it feels a lifetime ago now, but um, this was uh, the period immediately after lunch on on day one, um, which I think was a, a defining passage of the game. Uh, Sibley and Burns looked really solid in that first session, got to sixty three for none. And then Burns plays that uh, not not particularly sensible reverse sweep. Lawrence goes for a duck to that inducker from Bumrah, and suddenly it's 63 for two. And it was so obviously an excellent batting wicket, and England needed to post a big first inning score, or they'd almost certainly lose the game. And at lunch, you're thinking that, that might have actually been India's session, given how good that wicket was. 
And then after lunch, there was a 12-over passage of play, uh, first from Boomer and Ashwin in tandem, and then Ishant and Ashwin, where England were really hanging on. And Ishant was getting root to play a miss, which in itself is some achievement now. And it felt like a wicket was going to fall at any moment. And they weren't getting any runs. So basically, it would have been 73. And then you're thinking, this is actually... England could lose the test on the first day here, potentially. Uh, but they, they sort of stuck in there, scored, I think, 18 runs from those 12 overs, battled through. And then it's, it's then that the junior spinners come on. You've had Shabazz Nadim and Sundar Washington came on. And the pressure was just immediately lifted. Uh, England didn't look back from there. Two, six, five for three at stumps. And then Stokes obviously kind of takes the game away from them the next morning. But I thought that passage of play really summed up the imbalance in, in, in the quality of India's attack. Uh, and highlighted, as we did last week on the show, just, just how significant Jadeja's absence is. And um, on Jadeja as well, I thought, I thought India seemed a bit nice, I thought, particularly on that first day. I mean, it, it was a, obviously it's a slow wicket, but I don't think, and Crickbiz might be able to correct me, I don't think there was a single short ball bowled in that first session. I mean, we know Burns has, has had his problems against the short ball. There was also Kohli was kind of having a chat and a joke uh, standing at mid-on with Root at the non-strikers end, which, you know, is kind of nice to see, but I just thought it didn't seem like the first day of a, of a marquee test match between two big rivals. And um, we can't have it both ways. We can't complain when Tim Payne's doing what he does behind the stumps and then say, oh, they're being too friendly. But So it's not really complaining. I, just, I was a bit surprised by the way India approached it. And I don't think we'll see that in the second test. I think we'll see a bit more snarl from them um, and from Cody in particular, because... Uh, he was very gracious at the end there, but that defeat will have hurt him, particularly given he was uh, uh, doing uh, fatherly duties when Rahani was pulling off an incredible win in Australia. He comes back, uh, loses his first test match in India for a long time, having lost the first one in Australia before he went home. So there's not pressure on Cody as such because no one's going to fire him from the captaincy. But there will be a bit of pressure mounting in his own head that he needs to kind of show, show his worth as captain. He obviously showed it as, as, as a batsman um, in the second innings. He batted beautifully, ominously so, I thought. Um, but yeah, Cody's got some things to think about, which isn't, isn't usually the case on home soil. Um, uh, well, I'm going to say it. He is under pressure. Four, four defeats in four as, as test captain, right? Isn't that right? Two defeats in New Zealand? Yeah. So he's, he's overseen four test defeats in his last four games. Um, Rahane's turned water into wine in Australia. Uh, all right, I'll say it. He has to be. I mean, by any, by any reasonable measure, if he wasn't the king and lord of all he surveys, then legitimate questions would be asked about their, their best player. Maybe it's, maybe it's time that he, he lightened the load a little bit on his shoulders because he does the whole lot everywhere he goes. Um, yeah, we might want to edit that out if if this one goes out to to our our worldwide audience. But you know, if take out the take out the personality, and um, he he will he you would think that he would be thinking, okay, well, unless I turn this series around, unless we win three one or two one, then yeah, maybe expecting a knock on the door. Yeah, I think that it's fair to say that he he is he will be under pressure and feeling pressure, but I don't think his job is under any serious pressure, really. I, as Joe said, I can't really see anyone ever asking him to step aside, at least in the, in the near future. Um, on, on India in particular, I think 
the injury to Axel Patel before the first day was quite important in terms of how they balanced the side. <laughs> there is almost a problem in, in Richard Pan obviously batted brilliantly in the first inning, but he kept quite poorly again. Washington Sundar batted really well in the first innings, but Cody didn't really trust him with the ball. And it's, it's actually quite hard to see how they balance that side up because Coley and Shastri have for quite a long time now looked to play five bowlers wherever possible. So have, putting in Saha doesn't really fit. Um, they, 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 they surely won't drop Pant after his last three test matches as well. So uh, I think the Axel Patel injury um, did affect them a little bit and in, in they didn't have a fifth bowling option really that they really trusted. Um, we've got a question in from Vivek Hadarajan who asks, is there any chance that India can turn this around? I have a very smug father-in-law and brother-in-law. Lockdown is about to end. I don't think I can cope with this passive-aggressive smugness face-to-face. Miracles do happen, but for two series in a row, now that would be something. What positives do you think India can take from, from this test match and how uh, likely do you think it is that they'll bounce back uh, in style in the second? They're obviously going to bounce back. They're going to win uh, a percentage of the next three test matches and they might win 100% of the next three test matches. Uh, if, if they win the toss on Saturday morning, then put your house on Shubman Gill making his maiden test 100 to begin with. I mean, he's made three fifties, I think, so far in three or four tests, uh, and I mean, what what a freak, what a freak talent! So, if if they win the toss and bat first, as of course they will on Saturday morning, then suddenly uh, you can forget what's happened in the last few days, and then then it's on again, and then it starts again. It's going to be a grueling few weeks for England, but what they've done is give themselves a chance. Nothing more, nothing less than that. Uh, India will come back, and uh, and and it's. It's set up beautifully. It's just set up so well now. And they'll be hurting and they'll be stung. And you saw Shastri afterwards. Shastri was hurting as well. They don't, they don't, this doesn't happen to them. Dare, it, dare we wonder if it's going to happen again. Uh, just quickly, Phil, can you explain why the toss is so important in India? Uh, Taha mentioned Joe Root's 40 in the, in the third innings, which I think was absolutely key to showing you just how difficult it was because he batted probably more fluently than... than any man alive could have batted on that track and was still undone by a, by a shooter that landed in the crater just short of a length. Um, and it was ruthlessly exploited by Anderson on, on day five and Stokes as well against Kohli. The, the reality is that you get unplayable deliveries in India from about day, day, the end of day three, start of day four. And when it goes, it goes fast. Uh, you have to get your runs on first innings. That's why England were unrepentant at the end of day two so we're, we're, we're back on we're, we're batting into day three what do you when do you hear test matches today with teams batting into day three well you do when you're in india for obvious reasons i i, I would not start stressing out if i was in the, an indian fan um just a reminder about their record the last time they lost a series at home was nine years ago the last time they lost a test was before today uh was four years ago when they went one nil down to australia and they bounced back and won the series 2-1. Um, it would be rather premature to, to, to say India are in some sort of crisis. Um, they've got, we saw the talents that they have today um, with, with Gill, with Kohli, with Pant in the first innings. Ashwin got six for he'll be He'll be right up for it. He's, he's, you know, he's got some wickets in the bag now. Um, you know, England, England still have a lot of work to do. But India do have an issue with their attack. And I don't know if Axel Patel is likely to be fit for the next test. I'd be surprised if we've seen Adeem again in the series. It uh, doesn't sound like we're going to see Shadeja. So we're getting to this point, and it sounds 
kind of was like kind of sacrilegious, but should India play an extra seamer and just play the one spinner in Washington as a as a backup spinner? Because based on the attack that we saw, Ishan and Bumrah both bowled beautifully. Kohli would have loved a third seamer uh, up his sleeve in that test. Um, that said, if you go and the, the pitch is going to turn from day one, then they're going to look a bit silly with that lineup. But it does seem odd that we've suddenly got to a point where India's spin resources aren't quite what we might expect. I mean, Kuldeep Yadav is probably the most likely to come in, I would say. Uh, and that's an exciting option, but it's, it's a kind of, it's a risky option. And, and there's not just that, there's not that kind of banker who India can just bring in who you'd expect to put England under lots of trouble. I think Kuldeep Yadav could actually go for quite a lot of runs against this England batting lineup. Yeah, going back to the, I think this is relevant, going back to the broad Anderson rotation discussion. I, I really like the idea, I'm, I'm with Tar, I really like the idea of England fielding a fully fit, 100% ready to go broad Anderson each test. I wonder how um, pivotal it will be come the end of the series that Jasper Boomer bowled as many overs as he did on in in the uh, first innings. Um, I looked. I think it's the most overs Boomer has ever bowled in a in a Test match innings. Um, he had not played a first class game in India in four years before this Test match. Um, I don't care how good you are, uh, you need experience of that to constantly bowling. 30, 40 over. So even if England uh, lose the second test match and if they and then they put in a reasonable performance and make India tour in the field for a day and a half again, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure with four back-to-back test matches if you can reasonably expect Boomer and Ishan, who have had injury problems in the recent past, to be as good as they were in the first test. Um, and that, that could be crucial come the end of the series, which, by the way... Whatever happens in the, in the next two test matches, as long as England don't win both of them, which I'm sure they won't, um, the, the final test of the series will be alive, which is absolutely fantastic. Phil? Um, just, a, just a word on Kuldeep. If he, if he does come into the side as a left-arm wrist spinner uh, and he's successful, then he bucks the trend of test cricket history. There's very, very, very few that have managed to pull off, for whatever reason, that angle of bowling... Yes, your standard leg break, left arm leg break into the pads of the right hander and the, on, the odd one going the other way if, you, if you're good enough. That does not have any history in Test cricket. Uh, so if Cooley were to come in and do well, then he would be pretty much the first. So that's what he's up against. Um, you're right. There are all kinds of selection dilemmas here for India. And, and I, I lean towards Joe's point, except I'm not sure who the personnel are because Shami... And uh, Yadav, the quick, neither of those two are, are available for the second test match. As far as, as far as the news was telling us last week, I mean, things may have changed, but I believe that they're both out of the first two tests. Uh, and so I'm not sure who it is. One person that hasn't been mentioned, I suppose, is, is Pandya. Now, I know Kohli um, doesn't massively fancy him as a third or fourth option seamer, but you never know. I mean... It, Push may, may have to come to shove here and they might have to get creative. Um, if, if he doesn't fancy Sundar as a, as a second or third choice spinner, then possibly he might need to come in and, and get Pandya to do a kind of workhorse type job, you know, just to hold down an end, bowl 7-2 offside field and so on. And obviously he's a potentially top, top ranked, top six batsman um, in Test cricket. So yeah, all kinds of options for them, but none of them are particularly persuasive at the moment. I think the obvious bowler, sea bowlers come in would be Siraj. Siraj was really good in that Australia series. I mean, he was essentially the attack leader in that final test at Brisbane. So they do have someone there. But yeah, it's, uh, I wouldn't have thought they would have this many selection, selection dilemmas one test into this series. Um, we've got a question from Henry Joyce, who asks, on a scale of Ben Duckett to Andrew Strauss, 
where does the pod think Rishi Passad will end up in the pantheon in the pantheon of Alistair Cook's partners? Joe, what were you, what were your thoughts about the uh, cricket's return to Channel Four? Uh, first of all, that is an excellent question. Um, I thought they did pretty well, really. I mean, it's obviously very late notice. I don't imagine they've got a big budget for the for the show. Uh, I think they could do with a, a third person there, ideally. I think it's kind of a bit, so almost like a sort of Big Brother-style social experiment, sticking Rishi and Alistair in a room for, for five days constantly with nothing but cricket to watch. Um, but it's kind of it's a slightly odd, but I kind of I got used to it as the test went on. It felt very strange to start with, but I was kind of into it by the end. And to be honest, I'm just delighted it's on Channel 4, so I'm certainly not going to nitpick. I think Rishi's done a really good job. He clearly... Um, he clearly knows cricket um, and he, he knows when to step back and let Alistair Cook and Andrew Strauss who came on uh, later today who's going to do the second test speak as well so I think he's, he's doing a really good job in some quite challenging circumstances um, on the question yeah good question I would say at the moment he's kind of on a sort of Nick Compton level Nick Compton in India level not Nick Compton when he went a bit rubbish uh, when you know he was kind of solid but was happy to do the sort of background work and let others play their shots. So I think that's probably where we're, we're standing at the moment. Well answered. I think Channel 4 released their uh, the viewing figures for day three or four, the, I think the Saturday's, Saturday's play. It was 1.7 uh, million was the peak, which was 800,000 more uh, than uh, the number that watched the equivalent day in the second England Sri Lanka test. So yeah, that's, that's good. Pe- people are watching it, uh, which, is, which is excellent. Yeah, you're right. Um, and encouraging numbers. And I think they did a very good job as well with a, with a shotgun production. But just on those numbers, uh, 7% of, of those watching at, at peak times were under the age of 35. Uh, and while around half of the numbers uh, don't have Sky subscriptions, which is in, extremely encouraging, uh, the fact is that you know, the so-called next generation are not really sitting down and watching test cricket in the way that, you know, we hope that they might. That said, um, this is not a reflection of the game. This is a reflection of, of consumer choices, really. And and uh, Channel 4 Sports social media presence is not great. I mean, it's broadly non-existent in truth, but they are gamely trying to up their game on that on that side of things and release as many clips as possible which were conspicuous, conspicuously absent in the in the first half of the game uh, i think you will see an uptick in 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 those kinds of short little clips and so on for the second test and and hopefully they can feed as kind of gateway drugs if you like into into sitting down and and really studying the the beauty of of this this form of the game very encouraging, but we've got to look closely at those numbers and see where the discrepancies lie as well, I would say. Yeah, I just want to say as well, I think the, the third test, the day-night game, nine o'clock starts in the UK, that feels like a, a more of an opportunity, uh, especially if, well, we know the series will be live at that point, uh, could be delicately poised, be, have a bit of momentum behind it. I think those, those times are going to be much more uh, appealing to a, a casual cricket audience. So hopefully those numbers will, will climb as the series goes on. Um, before we move on to the rest of the show, as I mentioned in the intro, Ben had a discussion with Matthew Hayden last night about where Australia are after their defeat to India um, and a bit about his great old batting partner, Justin Langer. Good morning, Matthew. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Good. I'm probably better than you at the opposite end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the opposite end of the uh, the temperature spectrum as well, I imagine. Yeah. It's a 
about yeah. minus one here in London. Just opposite, full stop. But here we are. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I'd originally hoped to chat a bit to you about sort of Australia's squad to tour South Africa and how they might get on there. But now that tour has been cancelled and all of a sudden they've kind of got one or two matches really between now and the Ashes, maybe a World Test Championship final and maybe a one-off game against Afghanistan. It feels yeah. weird kind of talking about it from an English perspective, given how much this test cricket we've got between now and then. But how do you think Australia are placed heading into that series? Yeah, not too bad. I think they'll look at this last series against India and go, there's a lot of things that are wrong. Um, that's public's view, I think, more than anything, because I think internally, I think they're very sound. Hmm. Um, you know, when you look at their fast bowling attack, it's premium. Um, look at the options they've got with the ball off pace bowling. They've still got plenty of options in green and, of course, uh, line as well. Um, and even someone like Mitchell Swepson, who didn't feature in, in the play. So a leg spinner also could come into consideration, you know, one year's down the track uh, or less than that now for the Ashes. So definitely got bowling covered. Um, one of the things that they will be concerned about is their top three, how they're all placed, you know, what sort of combinations and permutations, you know, will go into forming really the backbone of the batting lineup. The middle order, I think, is pretty well sorted. Um, there's some conjecture around, you know, who can bat six. Um, but the reality of it is it's pretty solid. They've got um, no leadership issues, I don't feel. Pain will continue on to the Ashes. Uh, a lot tends to change in the cycle of Test Match cricket around the Ashes for us. Mm. There's all sorts of... It's a bit like World Cups in the one-day squads. Um, there tends to be a real build-up for that. And so I, I feel that that conversation around Tim Payne's leadership um, is now a moot point. I think they'll back him for the Ashes. And that'll set the rest of the batting order up in place as well. Their biggest issue is really are, are just going to be how hungry they, they are, how they can... Australia hates to lose, uh, in particular, it hates to lose against England, um, but it's equally is shamed against India as well, given the track record that India has in Australia. In fact, the track record really of India touring full stop um, historically has been, you know, one that's been checking in the past. So, you know, there'll be lots of concerns over that, that loss, but already, you know, in talking to Justin, they're really looking forward to just moving forward, um, you know, yielding to the mistakes that they made that, that could have been turned around some missed opportunities with the with the bat, ball end, and also in the field. So, you know, in and around those three disciplines, there was various things that you could pinpoint that had they have played 10, 15% better in those kind of critical moments, it'd be a very different conversation now to one they're having. I, I feel, though, the one that they shouldn't be having and probably won't be having is the conversation around their personnel because I feel that they're pretty locked. So you, you mentioned that the, the top order there and one player who you've kind of, I think England fans especially would have assumed he's like a lock to score like loads of runs against them would be David Warner, who's been so good for so long, but is going through sort of a bit of a lean patch at the moment. Do you kind of think that Australia will see that as something that will kind of just work itself out or is yeah. that sort of a bit more of a worry, do you think? Look, it has to work itself out. Mm -hmm. I mean, if Australia is going to win the Ashes, it's got to have its top order 
that's firing. It's, it's as really as simple as that. Um, Dave Warner, look, he went into this series, and I've been here many times before. I can remember going into the Ashes series in 2005, uh, six, um, with a, a dog bite to my left Achilles, um, which I was just going for a run out in the country, and a random dog came and bit my Achilles pretty much in half. And then I had sort of six weeks in the lead up to the tournament where I was really struggling and certainly wasn't practicing. You know, so it took me until the Boxing Day test match to actually get anywhere near back in form. And my career was at a real crossroads then as well. That was after the 2005 Ashes series. Um, you know, so individually things happen to you. Like it's, it's how you bounce from it. David, David, I think, will go down as one of our most revered um, opening players, batsman for sure. He'll be a part of that 100 club, I'm certain of it, um, as will Steve Smith, um, recently inducted into the 100 test match caps is um, line as well. So, you know, those sort of three kind of form the, the bedrock of the Australian lineup, and Davey will bounce, um, given that he'll have a bit more cricket under his belt, hopefully, um, even if it's just domestic cricket. Um, the IPL being sort of swept away, I believe it, it, it'll proceed, you know, through the April, May, June period, you know, as opposed to where it was in November of last year. So, you know, it was really an interrupted kind of preparation for the test squad um, by their choice, but, you know, such as the cricket program. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I just think he'll consolidate a little bit more and he'll be a bit more ready in terms of being match or preparation fit for the the longer format of the game. I mean, players always talk about how it's just part of switching between, you know, all the formats. But it's not just as easy as that. Mm. There are actually challenges to each format. And the expectations and the outcomes that you deliver on those expectations, you know, are almost polar opposite between where Davey started as a, a real short format um, personality and, and game plan to then evolving into this magnificent test cricketer, you know, with a unprecedented strike rate and also aggregate and average amount of runs. And sometimes your career tends to kind of mirror around what you like to go through. You know, I think I found it much harder at the back end of my career trying to go back into a slot of test match cricket where it was all about wearing opposition side down and being patient and, you know, all of those kind of like non-sexy events of, of batsmanship mm-hmm. became difficult when you've got this craving to hit boundaries and get on the play and, you know, the, the, it's a moving feast um, of your own thinking around the scoring rates and, and you're just a general sort of how, how the boundary makes you feel as a personality. You know, so he'll have to address a few of those things and, and relearn and rewire, if you like, um, around the longer formats of the game. Now, should he wish to continue, um, you know, into test match cricket, um, you know, it's a real challenge. Again, if I look at my own career, um, right at the back end of, of my test career where there was a really attractive soft landing with T20 cricket, Mm-hmm. Um, through the IPL and, and through the Big Bash League and, and other such um, tournaments, there's no question that there is a certain pressure with those those formats of the game. 
but test match cricket is exponentially harder. It's harder psychologically, it's harder spiritually, and it's harder mentally. And, and, and those, those sort of three combinations are, are punches to your, your own self um, sense of where your game wants to go. And, and you've either got to be in that zone or not, and that will be something that David will definitely have to consider. Wanted to ask you actually about the end of your test career because I was looking, so you got two tons in two innings, I think, against India at the start of 2008. And then within a year, I think you'd called it, you'd called it quits from, from test cricket. Was that a case of, was it like a, a loss of form or was it you say, was it that kind of that extra 5% you need at the top of that like challenge to properly get yourself up for it? What, what was it, I guess, that led to that decision? Yeah. Look, I think the key factor to, to it was that, um, it was really about for mine just trying to find that that happiness in the game. Um, the one thing that I've that I valued my contribution in the game was how I was going to contribute to the culture of the team. Mm-hmm. That's a big lofty kind of um, thinking, but it could be as simple execution. It could be as simple as was I enjoy enjoying having a beer and creating a meal for my mates and, you know, like was I loving training and, and turning up and, you know, doing all the hard the hard sessions and, um, and most importantly, you know, what was the game stimulating me and, and was I finding it attractive? Because as I said, there's lots of reasons not to find it attractive. Test match cricket in particular, it's just, it's a ruthless, long, often unrewarding sport where the majority of the time you're out of play and you're in it. Uh, even when you're successful, you're mostly out of play. You know, so all of those things were kind of like wearing, wearing me down. Um, I did not like the way that our culture was going. It was very driven around this sort of sentiment of uh, voices around high performance that were telling you what you could and couldn't do. Um, I think very unprecedented that voices are unfounded. A lot of those voices as well around your match play and your training and and your workload and it was just it was like white noise. Mm. Um, and most most importantly, I think to that is that it eroded this great sense of spirit of your mates and your friendship in the games and your just ability to be able to live whilst playing cricket. It seemed like it was the other way around. It's like oh no, you got to play cricket and it's your whole life. And, oh, by the way, you can park other things. Well, in my view, cricket almost got in the way of a good tour, um, you know, with respect to the game as well. Like when I came to England, you know, I loved hanging out with Lammy and, you know, people that I've met, you know, along the way, along the journey of, of my uh, non-professional days. I'd go up to Greenmount and hang out, you know, with my old teammates in the club, um, say good day to Gary and Phil Neville, um, you know, just... Just live, you know, like England is there to be sitting down and having a beautiful pint of whatever your bitter is, is available and, and enjoying both. You can have both. And so I felt like the tipping, the balance between high performance was going like that as opposed to just living and it being sort of somewhere in the middle where, yeah, you're, you're fit, yep, you're mentally, you, you know, really engaged in the sport, but also you're just having fun. I mean, 
you ask any of the sort of modern day cricketers if they've got a good story and they go, oh, yeah, we had a great ice bath and that was cool. We had Diet Coke. I mean, to me, you know, when you look at, you know, one of our recent inductees into the Hall of Fame over here, Merv Hughes, Mm -hmm. I mean, no one will ever forget his colour and character. Um, You know, no one will ever, you know, forget some of the great characters and and flamboyant people of cricket that England's produced over the year, whether it be Jeffrey Boycott down to down to uh, Beefy Botham or, or other, you know, numerous, pretty much any of that era actually had great stories to tell and they lived and played good cricket as well. And as I mentioned before, with test cricket, it can't be all consuming. You know, like I, I really feel very sorry for these guys at the moment living inside of not just a bubble, it's like a triple bubble. You know, there's the absolute bubble of the nucleus of the team and there's a broader team and there's the broadcast team that bring us all the beautiful pictures and they're all kind of got their various protocols and it's it's kind of just not fun. Yeah, is, is that something that you feel, I'm aware that I'm part of the media, media as I'm saying this, but that the media kind of... Me too, me too, I'm a part of that as well. Like, yeah. I, I get it. But, but from the point of view of like, you know, if, if a, say, you know, Mitchell Stark and Pat Cummins went out and had like 10 pints tomorrow night and were like laid out on, on a pavement somewhere, that would be sort yeah. of back pages of the, of the newspaper. Or, or even when, you, when you're on the field and you've got these stunt mics turned up, is, is that something that you think stops players from enjoying the game in the same way that you were able to, do you think? Yeah, look, I think, I guess I was really privileged, Ben, to play across three pretty unique and distinctive eras, the non-professional, professional, and or semi-professional, fully professional. Um, and, and also in, in, in that sort of, to qualify that, in that fully professional time, it still had a lot of the old ways of the semi-professional. I think that was the most enjoyable era, you know, an era that, that for mine focused on cricket, but also focused on a lot of the cultural elements of the game. Um, which incorporated the spirit of the cricket a lot more as well. You know, a document that seems to get that seems to get sort of pushed aside, um, rarely, rarely actually addressed. But the rules of the game seem to be taking a lot more significance, especially in and around DRS. Again, it's sort of, you know, it's a really it's a really noisy conversation because the more you sort of look at it, it's like a legal agreement. The more you look into it, the more grey there is, and the only people that win are lawyers. You know, so my question to the game is always, well, who's winning out of creating a very sterile environment? You know, is it inspiring, you know, our next generation of, of cricketers to be, want to be cricketers and choose that over other fantastic sports? You know, is our game and has our game got a, a, an appeal to it that lends itself to the old ways of the game as well and, and the traditions of the game? Um, rather than just you know, the stereotypical kind of safe in, uh, containment of character um, that we see. You know, you, you ask a question of Joe Root or whoever, and it's just like a very, like I know that he's not trying to be dull or, or irritating at all, he, but he just knows that anything that he says that's a little bit about him will get eventually regurgitated and punched back at him. And I think that is sad, yeah, because it's, 
I mean, I want to hear what Joe Root's got to say. I mean, I want to hear what's in here, not just what's in here and what's in the corporates that's running the game in the back backdrops. Who, by the way, have really played the game and certainly understand or 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 have that sense of feeling around the spirit of the game. I'll give you a really good example of this. At the back end of the test match in Brisbane, Ajinka Rahani presented a signed shirt of of the Indian camp to Nathan Lyon to recognise in his 100th um, test match. Now, I reckon that is an extraordinary um, moment of, of sporting history where, where that's what cricket's all about. Or, for example, Freddie Fleekhoff going down after, you know, the win at Edgbaston and the elation of that moment for England and what that would have meant and taking time to consolidate Brett Lee will be something that's burnt into my brain around what's important in sport. Because the wins and the losses, they'll come and go and the hundreds will be seeked and sought after and they'll be, they'll be had. But the game will still retain or should retain this great sense of purpose and fun, you know, where you can live. You, and, and you can't live if you're just sitting in a bubble, and that's why I feel, you know, at the moment why it's necessary but really difficult for the players. Yeah, and so just, just to finish in Australia, you, you mentioned Justin Langer earlier, and in terms of, like, the team culture and stuff, there's been kind of a few sort of murmurings in the press about how some players feel about him. I guess the first part of the question would be, how do you kind of from the outside see the current Australia team culture? And then how will... Justin, obviously having opened with him for so long, how will he react to these? Will he just kind of brush them off and not really be bothered by them or will it be something that he realises sort of a bit of something that needs to take notice of? Yeah, no, there's nothing ever gets brushed off in JL's head for a start. It's, I mean, he will take all comments, you know, deeply in hand and, and try and work out a way as he's done through his whole career to just get better at what he does. Um, he would say that he is a young coach. Um, he would also say, though, that I am true to who I am. That's something that Dale's always been so solid about. He hasn't changed one bit since I met him in his very bad T-shirt and shorts back in 91. He's just remained that person. And when I look and now after him, I, I know him, uh, as I do, I now look into his brothers and his sister and his dad and his mum that passed away a few years ago, but they are all just such solid individuals and people. Um, and his own family as well, his wife Sue and his, and his daughters, they're just all really nice people. So, you know, for mine, he's got this great reservoir of just fantastic support base, along with mates that, that love him dearly. Um, and culturally, he and... Ricky Ponning are two individuals that love the baggy green more than anyone that's I've ever played with. You know, so there's this really deep sense of respect and, and it's routed in the values and the purpose behind the baggy green club, something that has changed and shifted away from the era that we've just come from um, and the Lehman and Smith era of leadership, which unfortunately took Australian cricket into the depths of, of just of no respect or, or that's probably too hard, but certainly an era that's, that's compromised its, its structures. 
anecdotally, play the game hard, but always play it fair. You know, Australians, well, yes, world sledges, best sledges, no question. But the reality is the line was always there not to be crossed and rarely was it crossed. And always after the end of the day, again, anecdotally, you could have a beer. And, and this is what these two, when I, in my era, what the Great England side of 2005 realised is that it could come into our dressing room and love the fact that it could celebrate a day's play. Um, something which was, you know, for the majority of my career wasn't available to us, England versus Australia. But it was reignited in that era like it was in the beefy era and, you know, where they'd come in and they'd just they'd have days off, for goodness sake. They had a rest day. Yeah. They'd all, like, you know, play hard and, and you know, celebrate, you know, being involved in a test match and then they'd come out and do battle on the sixth day of the test match um, or the fifth day, but you know what I mean. So... Yeah, like I think that I think that JL will will take take it very deep into that space and will make sure that those sort of values and principles boxes are ticked off first as a primary um, source of, of how he covets the baggy green and, and how the culture um, protects and nurtures you know the next generation of cricketers uh, and then it'll also speak the truth and players won't like to hear the truth. Hmm. As, as no one likes to hear when when you've when you've made some mistakes, um, and it was very clear that mistakes were made. So he'll balance that out, though. JL, you know, it's he's he's not a black and white individual. Yeah, he is a he's a very colourful individual that's got a great depth of understanding, coming from a deep sense of self worth and purpose. And you know, I, I just can't speak highly enough for his contribution. Already, since turning around two years ago from South Africa to this now delayed tour of South Africa and, and into the future of the Ashes. Yeah, yeah, okay. And and, and finally, uh, let's talk about Haydos hey 380, which is the, the Power Pack cricket game launches in 80 days' time, I think. So tell me about yeah. that, that game, what people can expect and how they can find out more. Yeah, um, look... Uh, we spoke a lot about innovation during this in, in, interview and, you know, for mine, cricket has stayed in a very safe space. So what better way to bring out some of that innovation in, in gameplay? Um, you know, one of the things that I love to do is, is uh, when I was playing that season of the IPL was to launch that mongoose bat, you know, some, something that messes with the sort of, template of the game and, and, and sort of touches on that creativity. So you'll see lots of that sort of thing in the game. Um, match plays, uh, you know, verse, head off, verse offs, uh, innovation in, in, in apparel, innovation in tone and in, in voice as well and commentary. You know, it's, uh, the game's got to have a lot of fun, mate. That's, you know, if you've got anything out of this watching this interview, my personality is to is to have a fun and, and, and live what you're doing. Um, and this game will definitely uh, be a part of that. Yeah. I, I was looking at, uh, as you've had video games, their name, I think it's you, Ben Lara, uh, Don Bradman and Graham Gooch. So it's a pretty good club <laughs> to be in. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Saps also had a, had, a, had a game as well. And, um, yeah, look, I, I think last year I did um, voiceover for... Uh, for a game, and that's sort of where I kind of like got got the idea. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for mines, the technology and innovation in technology is something that is always going to be a part, especially during COVID times. You know, like you look at the opportunities that we have to go outside and play have been limited. So, you know, this will be, you know, a way to live the game a little bit more, which is exactly, you know, why you create these opportunities as well. Um, yeah, but most importantly, I reckon it's just, it's just having that sense of adventure in the game, um, seeing things that are going to be a little bit different, uh, exploring exploring some of the the ideas that I've had in my head for a, for a long time around um, video games, but also just the innovation in the, in the apparel and, um, and the voice as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, brilliant. Sounds good. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to playing it. Uh, thanks, thanks very much for joining us. And yeah, thanks so much for your time. No worries at all. Pleasure. Phil, what's your moment of the week? Well, it's it's got to be it's got to be Kyle Mayers, isn't it? Um, this this bolter from the blue who uh, overturned a test match that was going quite predictably in Chittagong, um, Bangladesh West Indies, West Indies stiffs, six first teamers out, including the skipper Holder and other big players who had all chosen to to not tour Bangladesh for. Covid reasons, um, uh, and so the test match was rolling along as as predicted. Bangladesh got a hefty first innings lead. They set West Indies three hundred and something, three hundred and seventy, uh, three hundred and eighty. I think it was even. I'm not entirely sure. I should do my research. And uh, this lad Kyle Mayers with an average first class average of twenty nine, twenty eight, just under twenty nine. Uh, came out there and absolutely smashed it to all parts. 24, seven sixes, 210 not out, I think it was in the end. One of the all-time great debut performances and one of the all-time uh, shot-to-nothing test match innings, I would say. Um, I'm sure there's all kinds of a tsunami of stats, which I hope you've got into hand, Yaz, because I obviously don't have any. But what I have done is watch the highlights this morning. Um, they're all over, all over YouTube. Uh, and it is, it's a real thrill because there is that sense that the last person in, in, in the cricketing world who expects this to happen is the man himself. And he prods around for the first hour and he gets a bit lucky, to be honest. I don't know if this has been reported too much, but he was plumber's LBW, inexplicably not reviewed by Bangladesh, uh, dropped at slip, one just short as well at slip, and described by Ian Bishop as a fortuitous 50. Um, Ian Bishop has seen many a West Indies defeat in his time and was just anticipating, you know, a, a, a kind of bolshy, good effort, 95 run defeat. Well, uh, I'm sorry, Bish, but your man absolutely turned it around. And from post-lunch onwards, this bloke was irresistible. He, as, as I say, it's seven sixes and some big ones as well. He's a big bloke. He's not quite Chris Gale big, but he has that a similar kind of style to Chris Gale when he goes big at the, at the turning ball. The bottom hand comes through and it's a lot of power and a lot of top upper body strength in those shots and he hits some big, big sixes. Uh, he was um, utterly flummoxed by what he'd achieved at the end. And there's a, little, a lovely little interview uh, and also a, a subsequent interview that's appeared on Crick Info and, and one or two other places. The, the West Indies board... I don't know if you saw this, but they set up a Zoom call between him and his dad in the immediate aftermath of the game. And he obviously wasn't, no one was expecting this to happen. He wasn't expecting to talk to his dad uh, in front of the world's media, in effect. But that's what the West Indies board set up 
and he had this gloriously beautiful Zoom call with his old man, who's a former first-class cricketer, Shirley Clark. Don't call me Shirley. And um, it's just a lovely little bit. And uh, and and the boy, the boy Kyle says to his old man, "You know how hard I was working when I was preparing for this tour. You know how I felt about this opportunity." I just want to give you thanks for the help, coaching, and making sure I was prepared. What a lovely thing for a son to say to it to his old man, don't you think? So look, the whole thing is is a is a really glorious um, kind of out of nowhere, left field, outlying test match moment, really, in what's been a pretty spectacular week for the the hoary old five day game. I read it had a two year break from the game as well until very recently, just just came back and had no record to speak of at all. Uh, prior to that break as well. really is one of those bizarre stories. And I love it as well. I mean, obviously, the, the, the cricket media would like to think they're quite knowledgeable, but when um, you get to a point where everyone is madly scrabbling for the Cricket Info profile, because no one's heard of this guy, obviously, uh, outside the West Indian media, I'm sure they have. Uh, it's a lovely thing. I don't think... I don't know if you'd get that in, in, in other sports in, in quite the same way. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it a brilliant moment. It was getting me a bit nervy in terms of what England had to set India, though. I was thinking, God... Maybe we should get about 420, 440, 450 as uh, West Indies strolled to victory against Bangladesh. I'd say uh, with, with, the, with the result in, in Bangladesh and then the result in Pakistan, which, which we'll come to, I think what's, what's been quite... What, what, what we kind of see every time there's a decent test match, we saw it in Australia, India, justifiably about, is about how test cricket is, is alive and kicking. Um, but that usually only comes after a great match between one of the big three, one of the big sides. Uh, what's been heartwarming, heartwarming about this week is people paying attention to what's happening in, in Chittagong because this guy forced them to um, people paying attention to what's been happening in Pakistan. Um, test cricket only really keeps, you know, keeps alive and kicking if, if everyone's playing it and producing uh, matches like this. Um, you can't just sustain it on great matches between India, Australia, India and England. Um, so that, that, was quite, that, was, that was quite nice to see. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, just, just on that innings, um, so West Indies were 59 for three, chasing 395, um, with not just Carl Mayers on debut, but Nakuma Bonner on debut as well. Both men averaged less than 29 in first-class cricket. They put on 200 for the fourth wicket. Mayers ends up on 210, West Indies win by three wickets. It's the second highest ever score in a fourth innings win ever after Greenwich's 2-1-4. And it's the fifth highest score ever on debut. Um, so pretty handy. Phil, are you going to say something? Just, just on the point that Joe, Joe uh, referenced that he had a couple of years out, I think there's a lot of West Indian cricketers who have similar kinds of stories uh, in as much as they have a lot of talent. It's not much of a of a money spinner to play first-class cricket in, in, in the West Indies domestic competition. Um, he, in particular, was a kind of a bowling all-rounder in the early part of his career and didn't do much in the first-class game. Went away, re- reassessed his game, from what I gather. Uh, his father is a level three coach as well as a former first-class cricketer and he worked very closely with his dad. Came back last year um, as a batting all-rounder and batted in the top five for Barbados having played for the Windward Islands beforehand and, and averaged 50, 50 plus in the last domestic competition with a couple of hundreds, made 600 and something runs in eight games. And his kind of story, I think, carries echoes through West Indies domestic cricket. Uh, there are many, many cricketers whose records don't really stack up 
when you when you look at them on paper, but who 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 have got to that record via various kind of peculiar routes that aren't as conventional as they would be in Australia, as they would be in England, and so on and so on. And I think if anything, this has kind of showed us yet again with West Indies cricket to look past the figures, look past the stats to see to see the man or to see that to see the woman and to see the quality of of the the individual's skill um it's it's been it's been a great week for for west indies cricket and and joffer has has been recognizing this and and saying you know what a, the great you know the, the depth of talent in barbados is is staggering i read a news story when he was talking that up halfway through his own test match himself uh and i spoke also to jason holder a few days ago by chance and and he was uh, he was saying similar things as well. He said that, that, that again, the talent is never in question in in the West Indies, and uh, you see the kind of commitment that this lad has put into his game. He's twenty eight years old now, uh, and that notion that certain West Indies cricketers here for a good time, not a long time, and if they don't make that much money, then they might fall out of the game. Well, this is another example. Same with Bonner as well, who's also twenty eight, twenty nine. No, in fact, no, he's older than that. Sorry, thirty one, thirty two. They've they've stuck at it and got their rewards with a with a famous Test match win in in Bangladesh's backyard where no one goes and wins really. Um, West Indies got stuffed last time out there two 0 so it is a, another rousing story for the game. Yeah, Mehdi Hassan scored a hundred and took eight wickets in the Test, so uh, for him to end up on the losing side is quite impressive. Taha, what's your moment of the week? Uh, my moment of the week was Hassan Ali uh, taking 10 wickets to help Pakistan uh, wrap up their series with South Africa 2-0. Um, quite, you know, this was happening uh, in conjunction with the England-India test. Um, and, you know, it was quite an, uh, it was a pretty good first test and, and this one probably picked it, actually. Uh, Pakistan batted first, made 272 Fahim Ashraf uh, in at seven made an unbeaten 78. He looks like, it looks like Pakistan have got a, a pretty solid all-rounder there at number seven. Played well in New Zealand and now he's, he's doing it at home as well. Um, South Africa made two a one. Hassan Ali picked up five. Uh, then Pakistan were struggling a bit in their second innings. They were sort of 76 for, 76 for five at one stage. But Mohamed Rizwan, who is, you know, his, his, stocks, his stocks going up every day now. Uh, he hit his first test century, rescued them, set South Africa 370, which looks way too much. But then again, a lot of crazy stuff's happening this week. So Aidan Markram knocks up, reels off a ton, Van der Dissen gets to 48, Abuma hits half century. And so at, at, at 241 for three, South Africa were, were properly in with a shout. But then Hassan Ali again uh, takes five wickets again. It's quite, quite a heartening story. I mean, we, you know, he, you know, people remember him from the Champions Trophy a few years ago where he was, he was brilliant for Pakistan and helping them win that tournament. And the last couple of years, he's had injuries, sort of just fade from the scene after the, the last 50-over World Cup. Um, and uh, it's, it's a common thing for Pakistani quicks to, you know, be, be the headliners one day and then disappear from the scene the next. Um, so it's always impressive when they come back and do well. Um, and, and he's done that this time. And um, to... For him and Shane Nefridis to share nine wickets on a on day five uh, in a, in a test in Pakistan is a, is an impressive feat. You kind of expect Yasser Shah and uh, the the old left armer to to do their thing, but um, um, hard, good good signs for Pakistan there. Uh, a two 0 victory of South Africa 
even at home is um, something to something to be proud about. Yeah, I've, I've seen a few Pakistani uh, journalists bringing up their chances for the next World Test Championship because apparently they've got a, a kind of favourable schedule. Is this is this right, Tar? You tipping them for the next World Test Championship final? Well, I've not looked at their schedule, but I mean, there are still plenty of question marks about their side. I mean, um, they've, they've got a problem with their, with their openers that they, they need to solve out. Um, you know, they've got a sort of... Azar Ali's still, still doing a job for them, but, you know, he's, he's coming to the end of his, his career now. Um, Fahad Alam has been ignored for way too long, but he looks like he's delivering now. But these, these are still early signs. They've got, they've got some really decent... They've got a good sort of nucleus at the top end there with, with the captain and the vice-captain. Babar Azam, obviously, dreamboat player. And then Rizwan is as impressed in now Australia, England at home and New Zealand. I mean, for a, for a subcontinental player to, to impress on those three tours, that's, that's massive. And, and he looks a proper player that you can sort of help build a side around, especially now he's, he's down at six. And then now you've got a good all-rounder as well that help balance the side. There's a good nucleus there forming, but it's still two match series at home and they've just had a sort of miserable time of it in, in New Zealand. So I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't go so far and to, to be fair I've not seen seen what the schedule looks like for them um, but you know I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that they're, they're favourites and you can never you can never really call Pakistan favourites I don't think they've got the tendency to surprise you yeah that series win over um, Safka was their first test series win over Safka in 18 years and Pakistan got up to fifth in the, in the IC test rankings now which is their highest ranking spot for four years actually um, they fell quite dramatically after they got the number one. Just one more thing on Cricket South Africa. In the last week, Cricket South Africa have um, written to the ICC asking them to reconsider how less wealthy countries make up for financial losses when scheduled tours don't take place. In this letter, they reportedly called Australia's uh, decision to pull out of the uh, scheduled Safka tour, which was due to start in February, against the spirit of sportsmanship. And actually, finally on Safka, Mark Boucher has said this week that he expects Quinton de Kock to, 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 to not keep the test captaincy for the foreseeable future. So we might see Aidan Markram in that role, as we've discussed previously on the show before. That That is it. We've had an excellent week of test cricket. But finally, I'm just a quick message. We are now more active than we normally are on YouTube. So after each test, this India-England series, we've got a short 15 to 20 minute video discussion on our YouTube channel. It's basically a condensed podcast chat with a different panel of Wisden and Wisden India staff. Um, check it out if YouTube's your thing, especially if you want to see what we actually look like. Uh, the first one was with me, Ben and Adia Sharma. Uh, that, that should be live by the time this podcast is live. Thanks, Phil, Joe and Taha. That's all for today's show. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends and we'll be back after the second test where England will look to double their series lead. Podcast Network.